If y'all would, uh, please open up with me in your Bibles uh, to Zechariah chapter 12, as I alluded to with our children. A a few things while y'all are opening up there, um, uh, and really... Not a word of warning, maybe a word of warning for me. Uh, it, due to the nature of this Bible passage, we could very easily lose our biblical bearing. In fact, uh, I actually believe that's why we see, uh, by God's own hand, the Holy Spirit uh, planting in here uh, a direct prophecy about the work of the Lord Jesus. Because uh, by the nature of the passage, uh, we see a call uh, to personal action. It's, uh, we see that elsewhere in Scripture, but it's, it's kind of super emphasized here. And you'll see what I mean as we march through. But we dare not forget the reality of the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That even as we just sang, by the way, one of my favorite hymns, uh, favorite psalm, favorite hymn, Judy, really trying to butter me up back there. Um, <laughs> Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Uh, the reality of the gospel is that our works don't save us, but in the words of uh, that great reformer Martin Luther, our salvation does work. And that's what we see in Zechariah chapter 12. And so uh, let's not get our biblical bearing uh, thrown off. Uh, Let's remember the foundation, the the work of Jesus on our behalf. And yet, even so, let's remember those uh, wise and spirit-filled words of of, uh, the Apostle James. Indeed, faith without works is dead. Uh, This is our main point this morning. Jesus Christ's death saves his people. And I think we're going to see this in some unique ways and what it means for us to respond to that as we read Zechariah 12 verses 10 through 14. Let me pray for the reading of God's word. Heavenly Father, Lord, would you bless the reading of your word. You have given us this word. It is eternal. And because of that, we would do well to pay attention to it as the sun rising. Lord, in fact, that is what your word is. A light into a dark place. Uh, Your spirit uses it as a sword to help and to uh, pierce through the shadows, even shadows that cover our own hearts. And so, Lord, would you do it this morning? Would you work a work in us? Would you stir us? And would you remind us of the gospel and the call that you have on each of our lives? Lord, please do it in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Zechariah chapter 12, starting with verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me... On him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, 
the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves and all the families uh, that are left each by itself and their wives by themselves. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord, it stands forever. We would do well to pay attention. All right, our main point, Jesus Christ's death saves his people, which it must elicit a response. That's really the point that we see here in verses 10 through 14, the book of Zechariah uh, uh, chapter 12. Our two points to get us there are really two questions that I'm going to ask you and that the, really the Bible text asks you. First, have you personally reckoned with Jesus' death? Second, have you personally responded to Jesus' death. First then, have you personally reckoned with Jesus' death? That is, uh, that is, have you done the calculation? Have you considered, uh, ha have, you, have you put yourself into uh, the equation, reckoned with the reality of why Jesus had to die? We see this in verses 10 and 11. Um, one thing that we need to answer first off is, who in the world is talking? in our text this morning. Uh, I hope that you noticed it. Uh, perhaps if you're familiar with the text, it might be to your own disadvantage because you might kind of glide over and think, well, yeah, Zechariah's doing it or Jesus is talking or something like that. But that's not how we should look at this because what we see here is a question. Is it Zechariah the prophet? Is it Jesus who is the Son of God? Or is it God the Father speaking through Zechariah as he does, right? So, so which one of these is it? And the answer is yes. It's all three. As God's mouthpiece, Zechariah is bringing God's word to God's people in the form of hopeful prophecy for the day to come when a spirit of grace is poured out on needy people. And yet, now that we are on this side of Jesus' cross, there can be no other person than Jesus himself who assumes this type of language when they look on me, on me, on him whom they have pierced, right? And still yet, as Jesus, who is the Son of God, is pierced for our transgressions, there is only truly one who can take this language to himself. And it is God the Father. And the language I speak of is this. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Elsewhere in the Bible, uh, you might be familiar with this, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his firstborn. What we have here is a full revelation of the depth of the love God has for his people. While at the very same time, and this is what I was getting at with our main point, while we see God's love on full display with the sacrifice of his son, with Jesus' willingness to go to the cross to receive this piercing for us, we see and we keep in view here in this text a vital truth for the Christian, which is how these people here, which are God's people, which in other words are us, how they are reckoning with Jesus' death. Because God's people mourn and weep at Jesus' death, just like God the Father. For God gives us his Holy Spirit and we don't take on some, uh, some divine status, and yet we share in uh, this familial 
uh, uh, unity with the Lord that causes a grief and a mourning to well up uh, like God the Father's own uh, uh, a moment like this. And that there is a personal responsibility here to be taken, which is what we see with God's people. Uh, it, it's written across the text with mourning and with weeping. We hate, in other words, that the piercing had to happen even as we rejoice that it brings salvation and, and, that, and that we can take solace in the reality that death couldn't hold our Savior. But, but for the Christian, the, the reckoning, the, the process of calculation, the knowledge that we ourselves individually contributed to the need for the cross, it remains for the Christian. It must. For without it, what are we even doing? That's why a spirit of grace and that's why pleas of mercy are poured out from God to his people. It's the act of comfort which is given to the Christians that replaces sorrow with joy at the reality of the gospel. That's where the joy comes from, is God pouring these things out on us as we mourn for the reality of the situation that God had to send his own son to take our place. An intense reckoning happens for the Christian. And it is not always immediate. It does not always happen in an instant. But it certainly happens over time. Uh, there's a, a famous author who's known for uh, writing large tomes on holiness. His name is J.C. Ryle. And uh, kind of buried within his myriad pages on this stuff, uh, he has this really interesting thought process. He says, the older you get as a Christian, uh, the bigger of a sinner you realize you are. And the bigger of a sinner you realize you are, the more mourning you do. <laughs> the more kind of frustrated you are before the throne, thinking, God, I'm sinning. I can't stop it. I'm a sinner, right? But, but then he said, but the older Christian doesn't stop there. For as they recognize the chasm and how they recognize it growing and growing, thinking, how could I ever get to you, God? They see the gospel in a fuller light and a fuller capacity. For Jesus has taken all of those sins, those uh, omitted ones that we're not thinking about, that are turning into committed ones as we grow in maturity. It's incredible to begin to see the love of God. And it's not in his fullness, for we could never comprehend such things. He's God, and we are not. But we can get closer and closer. In fact, you have an eternity to do so. Think about it. Where's my mathematicians at? I was talking about teachers. Where are my math teachers at? Infinity, right? You can never get all the way to infinity, but you can get closer and closer over time. And that graph gets closer and closer. Where are my engineers at, you know? And it gets so close that you can't even tell a difference, but you're still not there. So math says, and math is right, we can never get all the way there, but we have an eternity to love and seek after and learn about this God who would do such a thing for us. And so the question, it must be asked of us here. Have we personally reckoned with Jesus' death 
Let me ask it another way, a boots on the ground way that might help us. Do you think about God and his work for you on a regular basis? Not on Sunday. I mean on a regular basis. Are you actively pursuing more knowledge of God in his word so you can know him more? Is the sin that you're currently committing, don't tell me you're not uh, committing any sin, is the sin that you're currently committing, is it sickening to you? Is it frustrating? The answers to these questions and ones like them will help you more clearly answer if you have personally reckoned with Jesus' death. And if you're curious where this personally thing is coming from, this personal reckoning, this process of consideration that Jesus died because of you and because of me, because of us, well... We see how important it is. And we see this personally taking center stage as we transition into our second point. A closely connected point and yet uh, uh, importantly different. And it's this question now. Have you personally responded to Jesus' death? Verses 12, 13, and 14. As we're doing the calculus, as we're, as we're seeing what in the world is going on, there is this moment where a personal response must happen. A yay or a nay. 12, 13, 14. Three things happen in these three verses. There is a point, there is an illustration to the point, and there's an exclamation point. It's such a good sermon not even I could have come up with it. I mean, it's really cool stuff. The point comes in the first part of verse 12, and it is so straightforward that we can't miss it. The land shall mourn each family by itself. In other words, there are going to be personal responses to the death of Jesus, to this piercing of the Messiah. It won't be communal. Let me say it again. It will not be communal. It won't be the confession of the church first. This is so important for the Christian. First will come the personal responses that will then join together in communal confession, which, by the way, creates the church. A communal joining together of that which happened individually. To illustrate this point, four families are used with a fifth like Everybody else, right? We fit into the everybody else, by the way. But, but we see these four families used. David, Nathan, Levi, Shimeites. Even though I know, y'all know, where these families are found, I will briefly tell you, and then we can kind of uh, see how this, uh, this main point that everybody's going to do this is illustrated. Now, uh, David is king. The king, right? The king after God's own heart, right? This is the one whom uh, God uh, promised uh, he would never uh, lack someone on the throne. This was a direct uh, a revelation that the Lord Jesus was coming and would be of the lineage of David. Nathan, well, there are two Nathans that this could be. Uh, this is where it gets a little bit tricky. I can send you the Hebrew notes if you would like it. Okay, but I'm going to help us to maneuver this in a way that I believe is faithful and helpful for us. Because you see David the king, and then you get Nathan either, his third born son, uh, in other words, a nobody. Sorry, Carwin. <laughs> it's the third, right? It just is what it is. Y'all know if you know, right? Uh, or it's that prophet Nathan who came and said, hey, David, 
you've been talking to Bathsheba, what's your deal? Alright, so, uh, so it's either uh, this third born son within the royal lineage or it is uh, Nathan the prophet. And then we get Levites and Shimeites. Well, uh, uh, the Levites, they were the priestly class. Uh, they were those who had no land and who were called to a perpetual service unto the Lord. But then you get these Shimeites and it's, uh, I know that perhaps y'all are not familiar with this, but there are two Shimeis within the scriptures. One is a cursing man who throws rocks at David as he's leaving the city. This is not that Shimei, the Hebrew tells us. This is actually just, it's not the third born, but it's like the nobody Levite. <laughs> I, I hate to sound so crass, but it's, it's just a, it's a grandson of a third born who's over here twice removed. And yeah, he's sort of a Levite, you know, that kind of statement. In other words, what you get here in all likelihood is Zechariah talking about, uh, and perhaps I would say if I mention my second cousin in Tennessee, all right? And then I mention uh, Zane's second cousin uh, up here in, in South Carolina. I say, they've got to personally respond just like, just like we do. We just led worship here. We had a role to play. And yet, uh, all these people have to do this. And then if you're, if you're not convinced, the illustration goes on and says, oh yeah, and everybody else, in case you don't fit those categories. It, it's, it's the preacher, it's the prophet, it's the Lord using this, this kind of just spread across the board. Everybody needs to personally respond. And that's what happens at the end of the day. It's straightforward in that reality. It's hard for us because the names get confusing, right? But the reality stands. No matter who you are, no matter who your people are, no matter where you've come from, you must personally respond to the Lord Jesus' death. And with that in mind, with this point laid out, with this illustration to the point laid out, God wants to make sure that we really get it. That he really gets his point across and so he gives us an exclamation point. And it can't be any more explicit. He adds a phrase each time to the four families plus the everybody. And this is the phrase, I'm sure you noticed it. And their wives by themselves. Throughout the history of the world... It is not far-fetched to say that women have gotten the short end of the stick when it comes to individual rights, power, protection, and the like. But that is not the case with God, nor has it ever been, period. And this is yet another example of how God is revealing uh, a dare I say it and sound very cliche, a countercultural move. This is so against culture and what the world wants to tell you about the church that it's not even funny anymore. We shouldn't be surprised that God slams the point home with a shocking exclamation for that time and place especially. Women just like men have spiritual responsibility and here is a very important one culpability the same as every man in the kingdom of heaven every woman in the kingdom of heaven likewise will be called to answer before the throne of God the great equalizer it's a, every race gender nation 
time, place. If you want the great equalizer of all eternity, it is the throne of God. For we will all stand and answer and give an accounting of what it is that we have done and what it is that we have left undone and who it is we have believed and who it is we have not believed. And so with an exclamation point to the world, including God's own people at this time, he reminds them in his word of the needed personal response from each one of his people to Jesus Christ's death. It's as if God says, yes, I really mean each and every individual person must personally respond to the death of this prophesied Messiah. I'm being very serious. So, here, today, have you answered the question? Have you personally responded to Jesus' death? Have you felt the full weight of God's love bearing down on you? Because that reality is right before us. As we begin to reckon with our own responsibility in the death of Jesus, our mourning and sorrow is not what our cups are filled with. What does God pour out? Is it judgment? It's not judgment. Verse 10. This is God's words, not mine. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In other words, God's people. A spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. What is grace? Grace is an unmerited gift. It's not a requirement. There's not a time. You don't deserve it. It's given. You say, this isn't, I don't deserve this. It's given. It's yours. Grace, that's the good news because God's pouring this out and he's pouring this mercy out that we might see the fullness of the gospel bearing out through this killed, prophesied Messiah to personally respond to the Lord Jesus Christ's death is to rejoice at the removal of sorrow and sin. And so maybe I could ask it a different way. Are you rejoicing today? You say, I reckon with the Lord Jesus' death. I've personally responded. I ask a follow-up. Are you rejoicing? Or are you miserable? Because misery is not the call of the Christian. Though this world tugs at us hard. And we turn to it often. And the Lord gives us hard providence. Regardless of those things. For the Christian... To look upon the Lord Jesus is to give joy. The Spirit gives us such things. It doesn't mean that we won't struggle and that the trials aren't weird and that the trials aren't uh, so overbearing on us that we can't rip ourselves out of it. And yet the Lord will, for He is that good. He pours out mercy, He pours out grace for those who believe. It's a rejoicing moment. And so quickly, let me apply. 
In the Bible, there is a beautiful relationship that bears out between uh, the church of God and the people of God. So, for instance, our own denominational confession, uh, we read one of them in the Shorter Catechism. There are others. Uh, and, and one of the things that is said within our denominational standards is, is that salvation itself is housed in the church. In other words, the gospel is proclaimed most naturally there in all parts. Salvation is in the church, okay? That's where you ordinarily find it. That's why we find ourselves gathering together that we might go out with proclamation, okay? And so that's one piece. But at the same time, we know from the Word of God that the church, the body of Christ, is made up of many parts and that those parts are the individual persons, who have been called by God to a certain place, for instance, Centennial ARP, where, as I believe it, there is only one family who comes here without passing another ARP church. Why don't you check it out? I'm pretty sure I'm right. And so God has called us to this place that we might be together. And we know, for instance, from the Apostle Peter, that as we believe, reckon and respond to the Lord Jesus, we are raised up and given varied graces. And these varied graces are gifts which are not meant for the one who has them. But if you were to read that letter from Peter, 1 Peter 4, those that are around you. Your gifts aren't for you, they're for those that are around you, uh, particularly the church. And so as, as we look at these two pieces, that salvation is in the church, and that the people, uh, uh, it's not the church makes the people, but the people of God are raised up by the Spirit and make the church. As we see these things tugging at one another, with this in mind, are you more inclined towards passivity or activity here at the church? or at whatever church you are a part of. Passivity or activity, it's very important. Take away the roles. Take away the, uh, the, the named positions. Take away these different parts and pieces that we can fall into. And, and ask the question, am I passive or am I active? What God-glorifying ministry am I accomplishing with my unique gift from God that I received when personally reckoning and responding to Jesus and his death for me? Do you go to church to serve or to be served? What is the definition of service? And is it marked by the biblical mandates of worshiping God and sharing the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ with others? Or has it become so fluffed up and weighed down that you might not be able to answer the question at all? It happens. It's not just centennial. It happens at every church I've ever been a part of. It's easy for us to do. And yet we are reminded by Scripture to fall back into the basics of what God has called us to. Personally responding to the death of Jesus forces those questions and ones like them. And if, I don't know, maybe y'all aren't like me, but they make me squirm. It just doesn't feel great asking them, you know? Uh, but, but we've, and yes, we've got a little ways to go, but... 
But God is so good, and He's pouring out grace and mercy, and He's moving always in His people and His church. There will never be a time when the gates of hell prevail against the church triumphant. And if we are confessing, reckoning, and responding to Jesus, then we don't have to worry about that. But we do want to be diligent and sober in our service. And sometimes we don't think about that, and it's not good. And it can lead us into dangerous territory, not, not as a church, but as families and as people. As people, as us. But do not be discouraged. Because we serve a risen Savior. He has accomplished the work of salvation. And we respond in faith and rejoicing, even in our weakness. To conclude, uh, this is a stretch. Stick with me. Uh, I want y'all to be manta rays. Y'all know what a manta ray is? They get like 20 feet in the ocean. Not stingrays. Manta rays, all right? Google them if you don't know. These things are majestic. I want y'all to be 20-foot manta rays. Anybody want to know why? <laughs> um, manta rays have a problem. Uh, they, uh, they cannot stay still. If a manta ray stays still, they die. Uh, they don't have that air bladder that allows certain fish to stop or remain stationary or rest on the ground and so if you were to look at this and see it you'll notice that manta rays are a part of a certain type of fish that must stay in a perpetual state of motion uh, God doesn't make mistakes in creation he wanted the manta ray never to stop moving God uses nature at all times to reveal himself not fully he's told us that we have the word to illuminate that which we see in nature but man now that we have God's word and now that we look at that manta ray it is so obvious that God meant us to be drawn to the reality that the Christian must stay in a perpetual state of motion lest they die have you stopped swimming A Christian can't stop. It's not in the DNA. And so we must be, dare I say it, manta rays. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the good news of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for manta rays. God, what a mix. And yet we see how good you are to draw these things in and to move us forward. Lord, keep us at centennial in a perpetual state of motion. For then, Lord, may we glorify you not only now, not only next year, but in all the years to come until Jesus might come again on the clouds. May we be ready. Rejoicing. Until then, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. In Jesus' name. Amen.